your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Amity Schlaes. Amity writes a column for Forbes and serves as chairman of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. She's the author of a number of books, including The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression. Amity, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, to understand the American welfare state, I think it's important to understand the context in which it was created, which was the Great Depression. And your book, The Forgotten Man, is far and away one of the best books in the Depression that I've read. And so I wanted to have you on to talk about the Depression, its cause, and its effects. The subtitle of your book is A New History of the Great Depression. Could you start by summing up the old history? Yes, and I'm glad to be on this show. We're talking not only about my book, Forgotten Man, but also the cartoon version, which is just out. Um, the old view, and the view I think that kids still get in school, that we still get at university, is that government made things better in the 1930s. A trouble came along, the Great Depre- Depression, and the, then the government responded with action and therefore democracy was saved. That's the sort of standard line you get um, in school. And how do, I want to get to your view in a second, but how does that view shape our thinking today? Well, um, I guess, it, you know, when you say, well, we have a problem, what can the government do? Oh, what can the government do about this or that? So you see it, um, both political parties have that attitude. This is a bipartisan uh, preconception. So the Republicans might say, expand the child credit. The Democrats might say, lift the payroll tax cap. So both of them will be talking about government solutions, tinkering with the tax code or social security regulations to improve the situation for the citizen. That is, they start from the premise that the government will make it better and has that wisdom and authority. Now, I know it takes you about 400 pages in uh, your book and a few hundred in the new one, um, but how would you summarize your account of the Great Depression? Well, it's not even my account. It's the what the evidence suggests, and we've been really lucky in that thanks to technological revolutions, um, the availability of the PDF of historic documents online. Um, for the research of this book, I was able to look at primary sources. So this was a book, Forgotten Man, was written um, more than seven years ago, but it's it's based on primary sources. It, it, not um, history books. And when you look at the primary sources, the primary data, and the primary evidence, what people were saying at the time, um, you can see that the government made it worse. Um, the evidence is, is quite clear. Just by, uh, say, standard um, reckoning, what do we care about? Well, we care about employment, right? Unemployment was above 10% most of the time. Uh, and uh, that's not very good, right? Usually 15%. Um, or not usually, to be correct, but often 15%, sometimes higher, sometimes lower, always unacceptable. The Dow, the stock market measure that we use, did not come back in the 1930s. So the Dow is down, still down. In fact, um, didn't come back the next decade either. Unemployment is terrible. The New Deal didn't succeed. 
Um, so that that would be laid at um, the you know that's the fault of politicians. The New Deal didn't succeed, but also what preceded it, which is what we can call Herbert Hoover's New Deal, the Republican New Deal, because Herbert Hoover, president um, from 29 to 32, um, was a progressive Republican, had uh, government expansion too. So you have two presidents from both parties saying the government's going to solve the economy and make life better, and um, apparently the government didn't. The outcomes were perverse. Yeah, I want to get into Hoover in a second, but I wonder if you can quickly situate your view alongside other views that are uh, similar, say the Austrian account or Milton Friedman's account of the Great Depression, and just give kind of a high-level indication of where the similarities and differences might lie. Well, there are many interpretations of the Great Depression. Uh, One is that it was a big bubble. It was all a lie you know, just champagne, as in Great Gatsby movies um, that we had in the 20s, and it popped, and that was so bad that nothing could come back in the 30s. You know, there's another interpretation, which is um, that foreign causes, international causes, made the Great Depression worse. Um, Another interpretation, Milton Friedman, um, is that uh, it was monetary, and he emphasized especially the first part. Um, you know, that's what the focus of his book with Anna Schwartz's Friedman's from the 1960s. It was more monetary than you knew, and and that is, um, it was definitely monetary at some points. Um, and then there's the Austrian school. It's it's actually schools because different Austrians have different views, uh, and they think malinvestment made the depression worse, or credit failure made the depression worse. Um, or, you know, 20s excess made the Depression worse. So that begin, their view begins with, um, in some of the cases, to align with those um, on the other end who are saying the 20s were a lie um, for other reasons. So all those views are there, um, and it is a complex story. Uh, every year, for a different reason, the recovery tried to stay away. But what unites um, the facts of the 30s is that most of the time, the recovery chose to stay away. Recoveries make a choice because government intervention was too great, whether it was monetary credit, international tax or regulatory behavior by the government. It scared the market, scared individuals. Um, one thing that I learned when I wrote Forgotten Man, I kind of suspected it, but there I hadn't seen the evidence, was that the labor laws passed in the middle of the New Deal, so you're now in the middle of the 30s, perhaps contributed to unemployment in the later 30s. Well, wow, I never learned that. Um, But there are data that suggest that um, wonderful scholars, since I first published The Forgotten Man in 2007, have come along and said, gee, Amity, we have data that suggests this too. And you don't need to be a wizard to to figure this out. When um, you don't make a lot of money in your company, but the government tells you, Herbert Hoover or Franklin Roosevelt or the Wagner Act and its enforcers, that you must pay more, you're kind of in trouble. So you hire fewer people, you hesitate to hire, you postpone hiring. And that is what happened in the later 30s. Um, I want to mention two scholars, Lee O'Hanion and Harold Cole, who've been working on this. You can also see Jim Grant writing about it in a forthcoming book, that data was not really available to all of us, but since I wrote The Forgotten Man, it's come forth, and they they were very kind and told me, it, your your book, your narrative um, supports our data. 
so I'm looking forward to a very, very heavy series book about what all we did to the labor market in the 1930s and why that made so many people more miserable than we expected. Yeah, and we had uh, Leo Hanyan on as a guest in this podcast, so I encourage people to listen to that one as well. Um, I want to come back to Hoover briefly, because part of the account of the Great Depression and why capitalism fails focuses on the claim that Hoover was a laissez-faire liquidationist who basically said, we're not going to intervene, we're just going to let the market correct, and it didn't correct. Now, you've indicated that that's not true, but can you expand a little bit on that? Because I think it's definitely one of the most entrenched myths about the Great Depression. Could you wait? Could you repeat the question? I'm sorry. Sure. It's um, most people think that Hoover was actually pro free market, and that that's why he was unable to fix the Great Depression. And I wondered if you could just expand on the ways in which that's actually not how he approached the Great Depression. Yes, Hoover is misunderstood. I mean, he was a political animal, and he was a strong personality. I I think he was kind of like Mitt Romney. Um, Mitt Romney might not like that comparison, but you you want to imagine an enormously successful businessman, and Hoover was a, just stop and appreciate that, he was the highest paid young man of his generation as a mining engineer in a period when we were on the gold standard. He was uh, uh, very good at rationalizing situations at figuring out how to get gold out of the ground, at transacting in gold as a, a, a you know investment banking, right? Of investing in companies, so he was accustomed to success. He'd also conducted the large feat rescue of Belgians in World War One. He was used to being center of the room, big guy, and he just woke up for emergencies. He liked to be perceived as a fixer, a great leader, a rescuer. So when the depression came, um, he didn't do what Calvin Coolidge his predecessor would have done and say, let's hold back, he began to jump in as president. And when the president jumps in, well, it's a megaphone effect, right? And loud. It makes a loud noise. So he said, um, employers don't reduce wages or keep wages high. Well, the employers couldn't really afford that, so that was counterproductive. Market, I blame you. I blame short selling and speculation. Well, that scares the market. So let me spec you know, short selling helps the market to clear, as we say in economics. We find out the true price, what people really think, and that can then facilitate recovery. You know, he instead blames the messenger, the market. He um, signed some counterproductive laws. We know the Smoot-Hawley tariff, which hurt trade at a time when we needed it, and by the way, set the stage or for World War II by slapping Europe in the face, saying, we don't want your stuff, even if you're making it, and even if you're in debt. Um, what else did he do? I can go on. Uh, there's a there's a labor law called the Davis-Bacon Act that puts upward pressure on wages. Um, he kind of had a control freak attitude, and you can see that in his policies, and certain new dealers said later, well, we were doing what Hoover, they said sort of in a low voice, we did some things. Hoover said, um, Democratic Party likes to assign the blame to another party for the Great Depression, so they make it out like Hoover was a free marketeer, but he was far from it. If you look in Hoover's um, documents in uh, a book he wrote in the 20s, you'll see him critiquing laissez-faire, personally keeping a distance from laissez-faire. I'd say establishing that he's not an old-fashioned laissez-faire person, that laissez-faire is a policy of the past. 
So Ayn Rand probably didn't like Herbert Hoover. I'd like to know from your listeners what what they thought. But he was uh, the control freak variety of Republican. Yeah, I mean, I think the comparison to Romney is apt, particularly when you compare. My understanding is that Hoover in his later years tried to say that he was committed to laissez-faire, which in effect just gave fuel to the fire. Well, there are many, many Hoovers. He had a long life after the presidency, and he felt bad about his record. So it was sort of apologia pro vita sua, you know. Um, And he said a lot of things. But in practice, as president, he felt he needed to act. Words alone will not suffice. You can see this in the cartoon book. We have a gorgeous picture of Hoover, um, and I hope you'll post this, explaining to himself why he endorsed Smoot-Hawley, even though he, of all people, knew better um, than to sign Smoot-Hawley because he had worked internationally. He'd lived in London, not China, and Australia. He'd been to Russia. You know, um, he was kind of a... Uh, I, I'd say ego had played too much of a role. So I want to turn uh, to give kind of an indication of some of what FDR was doing and saying that was alarming businessmen and threatening the productivity uh, of Americans during the 30s. So can you give some of the highlights or, as they were, lowlights? Um, yes. Well, Franklin Roosevelt was a governor from New York when he ran for president. He... Um, had a record on the one hand as a progressive. Remember, New York was an important state then. It was kind of a mini America, and uh, progressive actions happened at the state level. Um, Some of you might have heard of Frances Perkins, who later became National Federal Labor Secretary. She did some of the things um, regarding employment um, in work in New York State, or, you know, colleagues did. So imagine a New York progressive getting elected, but who also uh, often, Roosevelt, spoke conservatively. So he was a presentable, happy man um, from an important state who had a progressive wing side, but also spoke conservatively, for example, about money. Um, you know, uh, didn't like inflation, warned about inflation. That's a conservative warning when he was candidate. But also, you know, it was just a mixed message from a charismatic figure. Uh, then he comes into office and he does things that people sort of agree with on both parties. He sorts out the banks, maybe, you know. He um, he worries about spending too much, and he also opens these large programs that do spend. So he's a big contradiction, Roosevelt. And as it, it, the New Deal begins to unfold in 100 days, it ends up on balance progressive. It ends up really progressive. The big progressive part is the National Recovery Administration, which was a radical plan for um, codes, uh, syndicalist codes, like uh, closer to to Italian fascism than to communism, um, to to govern the private sector. So imagine this was the National Recovery Administration, which um, each industry had a code that it wrote under it, and then they would enforce it. And that code favored big business over small and uh, was nominally uh, business regulating business, but of course enforced by the president and executive order. And that was a bit creepy, right? Uh, here the government was like uh, the healthcare situation. Now the government is going in a whole new area of the private sector. And then many other laws likewise turned out to be more aggressive than people expected. So it became clear that Roosevelt was heavily progressive, would spend, uh, would um, lead in deficit spending, even though he had spoken against it from time to time. 
um, and basically believed that government was the solution to everything, that it was one big community, mandatory, and that he was the pater familias. Yeah, and I, I just encourage people, really read her book, because you have to get the actual stories of what some of these programs did to people and the stories about the people who implemented these programs. Um, your The history of people like Ruck, uh, uh, Tugwell, Rex Tugwell, are just astounding, particularly like how complimentary they were of Soviet Russia and just how status they were. It's, it, it was really shocking to read. Well, if you want to be clear about this period, A lot of Americans went over to Russia, I've seen the future and it works, and admired certain aspects of Russia and sought to replicate them here, or at least but in, uh, Russia influenced what we did here. Some of those were conservatives because Russia was big as China is today. Oh, wow, big organization. Anyone who is infatuated with the economy of scale couldn't help but be fascinated with this country of so many time zones doing big things, right? So it was a technocrat's impulse. Um, but many of the New Dealers were not spies. They were just people with wrong ideas that they got from overseas, overseas including from places like Russia. They, they got ideas from Italy. Many con and, and who joined them? Many conservatives. The Time Magazine empire focused on big and standard, right? It liked big. So it liked some things that happened in Italy. So everyone thought big was good and Russia was big and maybe that was the way to go, right? America was so inefficient. Um, so you want to imagine that being played out. And to be fair, we didn't know the horrors of Russia, most of us, or what was really going on in Russia or what would come to pass in the 30s and 40s. Um, so there we were doing all of these things. And the story, I think, to which you're referring is the story of a small business, the paradigmatic small business. They were kosher butchers in Brooklyn called the Schechters. And the Schechters had a little business. And again, they were small. Their industry code from the NRA was written by who? Big companies, right? Who had an interest in edging the small dealers out. And um, the NRA code that applied to them it really worked against their business. Minimum wage, effectively, certain hours. They couldn't afford these things. Um, they, and it was contended sold a sick chicken. So they were indicted as violating the NRA, this big law, and they were dragged into court. And they just couldn't understand uh, why they would be in trouble for charging low prices when the only way they could get customers was to charge low prices. And they were quite ambivalent to be in court. They were probably Democrats. Here they were being aggressed, prosecuted by a Democratic administration. Um, and their testimony is just wonderful. I happen to find it in NYU Library. Again, the importance of primary documents in making these arguments. So the little Schechters had to fight back because they had the threat of going to jail. Um, and as it happened, the Supreme Court found for them. Oh, my gosh, right? The NRA, the big institution, was ruled unconstitutional. It's a dramatic story. If you go to National Review website or to the website of Real Clear, you'll see that we have a mini excerpt of the cartoon version of this story of the Schechters, the little chicken men who fought back um, and prevailed against the big government. Um, and I was quite uh, quite uh, moved by their story and even background, you know, talked to family members to, to do what I could to assure that I recounted it with the best accuracy possible. 
Yeah, that was definitely um, the one I had in mind. I haven't read the book since I think 2008, but that just has always stayed with me. Now, my book on Social Security, one of the points I mention from this era is that before the Depression, Americans, they refused to embrace a welfare state for 50 years. And in part, it was the view that your economic destiny was in your control. And so barring rare circumstances, you could support yourself and therefore had an obligation to support yourself. But the Depression and how it was interpreted by intellectuals changed all that. I think suddenly there was a view that anyone at any time might be unable to support himself and that this could happen on so mass a scale that private charity couldn't cope. Can you talk a little bit about how the Depression changed the way Americans thought about life and about the economy? Well, the, you know, I, the historian Paul Johnson, um, as you know, uh, said that there was something mysterious about the Great Depression. When there's bad weather, there was terrible weather, right? There was terrible agriculture policy that led to the dust storms. There were, you know, and um, there was a, a credit disappeared. There was a sense that we would suspend dis- disbelief that it was a mysterious period, right? The the 1930s and there was the need for divine action, and the government played on that. So that's the main point to make. The government played on that, oh, you are afraid. Be afraid. Only the rescuer can rescue you. It was like a bad movie, you know, when you get in that mode. And it, it was uh, an infantilizing mode on the part of the government. There is a crisis. Only we can address it. You are too sick to understand how deep this is, right? Yeah, that and sounds that, familiar. <laughs> That sounds, you are too sick, you don't have a doctorate in economics. If you have a look at the Schechter case, the the prosecution badgered the Schechters by saying, you know, you don't really have the education to understand this. What what college do you have? Well, I don't have college. I'm an immigrant, right? I don't know how to spell. I don't speak English. Took advantage of the intimidated state of the U.S. citizen to uh, put itself forward, the government, as, as father rescuer. Um, you discuss, you mentioned Francis Perkins, and you discuss in your book how during the Depression, FDR decided to make a push for Social Security, which I would argue really inaugurates the American welfare state. Um, could you talk a little bit about why he chose to do that and how he went about it? Oh, well, that's a very interesting story, Social Security. Um, Roosevelt was a complicated man, as mentioned before. He kind of liked the idea of small social insurance, and that's really what they envisioned on some days. On other days, they wanted a wedge to change everything. So you imagine he called it insurance. He tried to make it uh, fiscally responsible, even in the long term. But if if you would have a debate about Roosevelt and Social Security, you could could just argue both ways because there's many, many quotations. Perkins just wanted a big social program, and she got it. They're, um, they're, they were very concerned after the Supreme Court found against the National Recovery Administration, how do we do a big program and collect money? And there's a famous story of a justice, Harlan Stone, who whispered into Perkins, then the labor secretary's ear, the taxing power of the government, my dear, is how you can get away with a program like Social Security. And as today, Social Security had different names depending on which environment you were talking about it in. So some days it was a tax, right, the taxing power to make it legal. Other days it was insurance, right, Uh, uh, whatever suited the auditors, the government, the public pitch, right? 
Um, and there, what I found compelling, and I didn't know until researching Forgotten Men, and we've again we've drawn him beautifully, was there were there was significant opposition to Social Security. One of the figures in Congress was Bennett Champ Clark, um, a lawmaker, and he said, you know, why don't we just run an experiment? We can have Social Security, but um, companies that want to give their people pensions, their employees pensions privately, let them do that too, and let then let the people see what the returns are, and there'll be this nice running experiment, private versus public, and we can all judge for ourselves a control. Of course, that was not permitted. The CHAMP amendment was not passed. Mr. CHAMP had to be pacified with the um, the, the weak consolation of his own commission, and that went nowhere, right? And Social Security began. And, and today, it's important to point out to the listeners, Social Security is a much wider program than it was in the 30s. Would they pay one cent in, two cents? You know, little amounts were paid in and little amounts were taken out. There were none of the extensions we have now, and the payroll tax was nowhere near as high as it is now. Um, now, I and many others have been vocal drawing attention to the incredible and incredibly destructive amount of uh, government spending and debt that we're pursuing right now, mostly thanks to the welfare state. But many of our critics say that while there may be long-term problems with spending, the short-term is that we need more government spending to stimulate the economy. And the same sort of argument, which really has its roots in Keynes, was promoted during the Depression. So can you tell us a little bit about the ideas of Keynes and how they were taken then and what lessons we might draw from it today? Well, you want to be careful because Keynes was not Keynes until the mid-30s. If you look at the economic consequences of the piece, one of his earlier books, it was fabulous. Um, it, so Keynes was just developing what we call Keynesianism, which is spending to stimulate. The government at that time was smaller, um, so when it spent to stimulate, it probably had less authority, uh, less power in the market. Um, but this idea was going around. We had our own proto-Keynesians. Um, uh, Catchings is one of them whom I mentioned uh, in in Forgotten Men, uh, who said spending is the answer. They were kind of fooling around with these ideas. Uh, Mariner Eccles, who was um, the patriarch from Utah, came to run our Fed. He had these ideas too. Maybe we need to spend more to get the economy going, something like that. Um, and that idea became uh, more popular later. And then Keynes came to explain things like, you know, things we know um, the way we do now. But but you don't want to say Keynes wrote the New Deal. That would be anachronism. Um, can you tell us, finally, you mentioned the illustrated version of The Forgotten Man, but maybe describe a little bit more about uh, the work and then just give people uh, how they can follow your work more generally. Oh, thank you. Um, the Forgotten Man graphic was drawn by a brilliant artist, Paul Revoche. I can't recommend it too highly. I can say that since I didn't draw it. Um, that's very, very important uh, for the listeners to know. Uh, he worked years and years on this. It's the first, um, I'd say, the, as far as I know, the first free market book to make it to number one on the New York Times list for graphic novels, which is this new format used in so many schools. Um, younger people do learn visually. Um, I don't think this is a stupid book at all. It's appropriate for any 9 to 90. Um, it's uh, as uh, to the original book, uh, say, as a film would be to an original book. It's different, um, but I don't think it's dumb. He exceeded masterfully in catching, capturing characters, including Ayn Rand, 
um, who makes a cameo. She uh, she saw through the New Deal, and it would be wonderful to look and think, you know, look at her records and see what she was saying and thinking in this period. Um, you know, the, the New Deal impressed her. I have her uh, in the period where she was campaigning for Wendell Wilkie, who was the answer to the New Deal in the later 30s. Yeah, it's a, just a really fascinating period. And I, Ayn Rand is sometimes accused of not working with people who, you know, didn't fully agree with her. But she was very active during that time trying to form coalitions among conservatives and trying to uh, fight Roosevelt and the what she saw as a real transformation of the economy under him. Um, so maybe we'll we'll do a show on that at some point. Uh well, thank you, and my guest today has been Amity Schlaes. Amity, thank you for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Oh, thank you. So I just want to put today's interview in the context of the welfare state. The One of the major arguments for the welfare state has always been that we know that a free market cannot work because it inevitably leads to panics and depressions And during these depressions, massive numbers of people are unable to support their own lives, even if they want to work. And so many people are unable to support their lives that private charity is stretched past its limits. And thus, if we actually want to be humane and not just let people suffer and ultimately die, we need to support the government, which is the only entity that can bail us out in those times. We heard that during the depression we certainly hear that today now as we talked about with amity it is a real and challenging question to get exactly what explains the crash and the great depression including its uniquely long length i don't think that in any particular interview or podcast we can resolve that question but i think there's no issue and there's no challenging the fact that government intervention played a massive, massive role, and that what you had during this period, both leading up to the crash and the depression, and during the 30s, was nowhere near a free market. The same, incidentally, holds true today in our Great Recession. Whatever you can say about housing and finance, you cannot call them free markets. They were indeed some of the most regulated markets in the country. So there's no reason and no evidence, certainly not coming out of the Great Depression, that capitalism leads to the kind of mass scale unemployment that would allegedly make it impossible for private charity to help those in need and that would necessitate government redistributing wealth. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.